I'm Victoria, and this podcast is all about running, marathon training, and run coaching. It is packed with useful tips to help you grow as a runner. I am a 13-time Boston qualifier and mom of two who started running as an adult. I learned a lot on my journey, and in 2014, I launched an online run coaching business to help other runners. Now, we employ several run coaches and are one of the largest online run coaching companies. We teach you the secrets to reaching your potential in the sport of running. We give real talk discussing personal stories of injuries, setbacks, and PRs. Think of this as a conversation with serial marathoners who share the lessons that we learned along the way. This is the Run for PRs podcast. We are doing another Ask the Coaches podcast today, and we pulled and got some questions from you guys on social media that we're going to be talking about today in this different type of format. I have Coach Jason here who has over a decade of run coaching experience and who has been running for over two decades now, and myself, Victoria, who I have been coaching for Um, seven years now, and we are just hoping that we can share some of our knowledge with you today and answer some of these questions um, in longer responses than we could through social media, because sometimes you get these comments on our Instagram account or through email, and typing out a response, you can only, you know, add in so much, so sometimes hearing it in an audible form can be beneficial and we can really discuss the topic in a little bit more depth. Um, So the questions that we're going to be talking about today are number one, we preach a lot about the hard days hard. And what that means is that when you have a hard workout day, you're going to want to follow that up with a hard lifting session so that you can recover on your easy running days. And this person in particular wants to know a little bit more about the logistics when it comes to these hard days hard. So are we going to be doing the lifting right away after? And how are you fueling your day when you have these two workouts that need to get done? So it's really more about the fueling aspect and really logistically how to set up that hard days hard because it can be a new concept for people. Um, And it goes against kind of traditionally what was thought of to be um, the norm, you know, maybe like 10, 20 years ago when people thought, okay, you should only be running on one day and then lifting on another day. We're saying let's put all of your hard effort in one day so that you can fully recover on the other days. So chatting a little bit about that. The second question that we have is, can I run a half marathon two weeks after running a full marathon? So the full marathon is a big um, effort on your body and a lot of people want to know kind of what can I expect in terms of recovery and rebounding and doing races and we're going to be chatting a little bit about that. And the third question we have is how can I prepare for a higher altitude race for someone who is training at more of a sea level altitude? So this question comes from someone in Minneapolis who is hoping to run a race at about five or 6,000 feet altitude um, elevation out in Montana. And so she wants to know how can I prepare and what to expect um, in a race where you're going to be at altitude when you have not trained at altitude. Um, The next question is... What is the best fueling for the first marathon? So we're going to chat a little bit about fueling and how to learn what works for you and how to get um, into fueling if it's it's a new concept because a lot of people are doing their first marathon this year or maybe they've done a marathon before and they've never fueled and we're still just going to go over the basics and how to really nail down a fueling plan for your success. And then our final question was about if you do not go marathon pace for your long runs, how are you supposed to know what your marathon pace is? So on a lot of our recent posts this week, we're doing a theme about our long runs and what pace you should run. And on the day we're recording this podcast, we released a post that said, um, a lot of your long run should actually be done at an easy pace. And so that's going to be slower than marathon pace. And there's just a lot of confusion as to how can you run a marathon at marathon pace if you do all of your training um, at that easy long run pace for your long runs. So we're going to be chatting about how you can discover what your marathon pace is and how you should be incorporating some marathon pace work into your training regardless 
of what level of athlete you are at and how you can just frame up training in general so that you can be in the best shape for marathon race day. And then also just figuring out, hey, what pace should I run for this marathon, even just based on my training? So sometimes it's a little bit too late. And so we're just going to help people navigate like what what pace you should run your marathon at. Um, and before we get started, uh, just some fun topics that came in as always getting started chatting with some of these people. Someone said on a podcast that they recently listened to, um, some people said that you should not be running a marathon in September. And I thought it was kind of an interesting, um, topic we could kick things off with, even though it's not an official question today. And that was mainly due to the fact that why would you run? This was the logic of the person saying this is why would you run a marathon in September when you could do it in October and be guaranteed, in quotation, guaranteed good running weather. So I just wanted to take a little deep dive into running weather and the conditions that you may face on race day because I do think there is a little bit of a misconception. And if you are training for an October marathon, chances are you're probably going to have good weather, but at the same time, there are just no guarantees for that. And I know, Jason, in your recent history, you have seen some races like the Chicago Marathon or other races where it's supposed to be a cool day end up being a warm day. And so what is something that an athlete should be thinking about when they are planning their races? And let's say someone does want to avoid a hot weather day. What is your recommendation? Yeah, it's a good question. Like you said, there are really no guarantees um, unless you're really going to find a, a marathon maybe in like December, January. But even then, you, you're looking at states like Arizona, which would be one of the few states that offers a race or California during those times. And so um, you just never know. But like you said, the Midwest is pretty notorious for having some good weather up in the, um, you know, maybe October, November time frame. Uh, but you know what, when, when I see, when I hear someone say that about September, I think of, well, July and August are worse, I think personally. So certain parts of the country are starting to cool down in September and depending on, you know, the elevation level, it might be a little bit higher up. And so the, the air might be cooler. Um, but yeah, I mean, whenever you're training for a marathon, you know, it's important to understand that in order for us to, you know, have our A race on that day, so many factors have to go right. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, you know, feeling's got to be spot on, training has to be good, mentally we need to be sharp, all of these things. And so, um, you know, weather does play a role, but it's definitely not the sole factor. And there's so many other things that we need to focus on, um, you know, as mentioned. Yeah. And I do think it's really important to really reflect on why you're doing the race in the first place, right? So years where we've been signed up for, you know, the Boston Marathon, for example, one year it was a torrential downpour and the next year it was very hot. We knew that the week of the race. um, But when you're doing a race like Boston, you're not necessarily doing it for a specific time goal. You're doing it because it is the Boston Marathon. And so, you know, you could look at the weather forecast and say, hey, you know, it's not ideal conditions. So I'm going to find a different marathon to do, but most people aren't going to do that. Um, whereas if you are maybe just training for a race to try to get a BQ to try to get a specific time, then maybe you just stay open with your options and then let yourself have that flexibility of kind of watching the weather. And if something does happen like week of the race, maybe you're going to pivot and find a different race that you travel to. You might, um, even if it's within driving distance, right? So there's a whole series of races that you could do in the fall in different areas of the country. And even if you push back your marathon one week or one day or whatever it may be, that might be more optimal if you're someone who is chasing a time goal. But there's a lot of situations where people aren't necessarily chasing a time goal. And there is something to be said about running in these adverse conditions. Um, Like I was talking about the Boston Marathon or uh, the the year that it was a torrential downpour. Um, Part of that was just being in that experience and running with everyone on that day. And even just last night, we were watching the Olympic trials, right? And the the 5K and the 800. Um, And I think they announced that it was like 93 three degrees when they were competing. But that's the thing is this is the Olympic trials and that just so happened to be the day and the weather on that day was 95 degrees. So you had to compete in order to, you know, get your spot at the Olympics, um, in those conditions. And so you're basically racing against the competition and against the elements. And there's something to be said about that. Um, so really just asking yourself, like, why are you running? And then picking appropriately and allowing yourself to be flexible. 
Yeah, I agree. I think most of us, you know, we pick a marathon for one of two reasons. Number one, we either want to go for a PR. And so we pick a fast course or, you know, a pretty good time of the year so that we're hoping, you know, it's hopeful that we'll get some better weather. Um, and then the other reason is just the experience of that potential race. Like there's something about that that's attracting us there. Maybe it's the city, maybe it's the race atmosphere, maybe it's the course. Um, and so, you know, depending on what that reason is, I think that plays a huge factor into what race you decide to do and uh, when that ends up being. Yes, definitely. And even if there is a, a day where, you know, you're doing a race, even if it's a full marathon and it's a super hot day um, and you go into it knowing that you're not going to hit your time goal, um, all of your training isn't out the window, right? So you don't like end your running career at the end of a race. You just continue to build. And I've done about five marathons. I think I was doing math in my head on my run this morning, five marathons that were in 70 degrees or hotter. And a lot of the reasons why I did those races is because I was just going out there and I wanted to do another marathon. They weren't necessarily for, you know, I want to run my fastest time today. Um, When you sign up for a marathon that's in the summer or in, you know, like that podcaster was saying in September, you know, and you really have to accept that risk of, you know, it might be hot. And if you're going to be traveling south for a race, like the Disney marathon, um, even if that's in January, it, it could still be really, really hot. And I know the last year they had it, we spectated some athletes. My parents went down and did, um, the dopey challenge and it was extremely hot when they were running, um, that year and another year is it can be really cool during that time of year. So just understanding and knowing that before you sign up for a race, um, if you are really, really dead set on a specific time goal, you're going to want to pick the fastest possible race, fastest possible course in the coolest possible area, right? But if you're going for more of the experience just to do the race and maybe you you hope that you can get a good time, but you're not going to be like totally heartbroken if you don't get it, then that's where you can kind of start opening things up and saying, you know what, I'm going to do a marathon in July, right? So that's a little bit risky, but I just want to touch on that because I think sometimes people are really afraid of race day weather and trying to control those uncontrollable things. But do you have any words of wisdom when it comes to those uncontrollables and how it's not really that big of a deal? Um, yeah, I mean, I would just, like you said, there's, if, if you're choosing a marathon, um, that's potentially, um, I don't know, May through October, then you run the risk of it being slightly warmer, um, especially if it's in the South. And so you just want to always, um, you know, figure out what is your main goal? What is your purpose for doing the marathon? And then, um, you know, train appropriately, but then also just be prepared for any potential, um, factor like that that can change just in the in the blink of an eye yeah definitely and another thing just to think about is just because it's great racing weather and you know 40 degrees cool perfect um overcast all of those things doesn't even mean you're gonna run well right so you you might run even a better time in a little bit um slightly unideal conditions you can still get 100 out of yourself but if you have a perfect condition day um there might be something that still goes wrong so don't think that like a perfect uh weather day is necessarily like your golden ticket to a perfect performance like i know the quote out there the marathon doesn't owe you anything is is always important to kind of keep in mind um So I guess with that, we're going to dive into the first official question that we had for this podcast is about the hard days hard. So a lot of our posts, we talk about keeping the easy days easy and then following that up with you have to have hard days too. So 80% of your training should be easy running mileage. So if you're running um, like 40 miles a week, I believe that'd be, what about Oh my gosh, I can't do math in my head. Like 10 10 miles, let's say. Um, 50 miles a week, 10 miles should be a workout. And the other 40 should be easy runs. So in order to break that up, you might have two workouts per week where you're doing hard effort runs. So it might be a tempo run. It might be some speed work on the track. It just really depends on what your training plan looks like. But on those harder running days where you're running those faster paces, we always advise that athletes do their lifting and their strength training on those days so that they can fully recover on their rest days and fully recover on those easy running days because it's not as much of a stress on your body. And allowing that polarization of training lets you recover so that you can get faster. And this question was more about like, how do I fuel? Because asking your body to do two workouts in one day 
is a lot and your body's going to need the proper fuel and energy for those workouts. And Jason often does two workouts a day, even with your tri training, but specifically you're someone who, who lifts regularly. And, um, I think you do a really good job of fueling. So could you speak to what you do on the days where you're doubling up on workouts? Yeah. Um, you know, if I'm doing try stuff, it might look a little bit different as opposed to if I'm just like running and going to lift. Um, because when you're out on the bike, obviously it's just so much more convenient to be able to fuel. You know, you can bring, um, you know, a couple water bottles, you can have your goo and all that. And sometimes on the run, I just don't like to deal with that. But um, I would say that for me, I think about the time that I'm going, that the window of time that I have to spend on this, on the morning workout, whatever it is, you know, my first workout of the day. Um, and if it's going to be about 80 minutes or less, I probably don't need to worry so much about fueling. Um, if it's going to be more than that, I'm going to make sure I bring something to eat in between the two workouts, just so that I can uh, have a, a, you know, make sure that I can replenish a little bit, have some energy to continue on and that sort of thing. And then also too, I guess, um, the only time I would do two workouts and have it be back to back like that is if it's going to be pretty much an hour and a half or less. Otherwise, if it's going to take longer than that combined, I'm going to break it up into two separate workouts. One, do one, do do one in the morning, do one later on in the afternoon. So I have a chance to eat a full meal in between. Um, I guess the only time I would do two workouts back to back like that was if I was going to do like a brick, like a bike and then a couple mile run or something like that. Um, but as far as lifting, you know, during marathon training, for example, like your, your long run, um, you're probably not going to lift back to back after that. Um, I think that it's best to eat uh, a full meal, make sure you're replenished and then um, get your lift in later in the day. If it's your weekday workout, so you're doing, I don't know, maybe it's like a seven mile workout or six mile workout and it's going to take you about an hour. I think you're okay to do your lift right after that if you're able to, if you're able to squeeze it in. Um, and in that case, I would just eat something with protein re- real quick in between. So our go-tos are, are these uh, protein bars that we like or a smoothie. And I'll pre-make them so that we have them ready to go. And I know you're someone that likes to um, potentially sometimes lift before your workouts um, for run days. But I'm someone that can't really do that. Um, and I feel like the more you lift... Uh, you're eventually going to be able to maybe get away with doing that before you run. But for people like me, I have to, I have to run first. Otherwise I'll be too sore. Right. Definitely. So on the days where you're going to be out there doing a aerobic workout for over 90 minutes, you're making sure that you're fueling during that activity as well as after. But I think regardless of how far you're going or what you're doing, you should, whenever you're done with a run or with your lifting, make sure you're refueling, like you said, with something within 20 to 30 minutes. Maybe that's going to be a protein shaker, protein bar. Um, And the reason that we say, you know, a protein shaker, protein bar is mainly because it's a lot of work to like cook immediately after running and, and sometimes just it's just more convenient to eat something that's a little bit prepackaged or easy to get um, those calories and the protein right away. Um, but then once you have some time, maybe you're going to be lifting on your lunch break or maybe you're going to be lifting after work. It's really important to make sure you're eating um, some quality meals during the day and spacing it out. So if you are going to lift over your lunch break, I would maybe recommend sitting at your desk and eating like a mid-morning lunch. So maybe something around like 9, 30, 10 so that you can allow your body some time to digest before lifting over your lunch break. Um, And something that I would eat, I mean, it just really depends on what your typical diet looks like but just something that's a little bit balanced, um, some, some rice, sweet potatoes, chicken, um, something along those lines, maybe some veggies, whatever you typically eat, just making sure you're, um, fueling up. And one thing that I've found when it comes to these higher intensity bouts of exercise is that it can at times suppress your appetite, especially if you're someone who's going to be working out in the heat. Um, what ends up happening is your body is working really hard. And when it does that, the blood diverts to the muscles in your body um, and it kind of goes away from your digestive tract. It actually starts to kind of shut things down there. Um, but as your day moves on, it, it'll rev back up to, to uh, start digesting food again. But what ends up happening after high intensity workouts because of the, the blood diversion that happens is that you may not have an appetite immediately after 
finishing a hard effort workout. And so what a lot of people do is they end up making the mistake of, well, I'm not hungry, I'm not going to eat. And then it comes to bite you later in the day when your body is totally depleted and and um, running low on nutrition. So Jason, has that ever happened to you? Or I'm sure you've witnessed it happen to other people. What are some, some suggestions for someone who maybe isn't really having an appetite um, even you know a couple hours after that workout? Because what should they be doing to fuel uh, before they go into the lifting? Or is it okay to kind of skimp on things? What is your, your stance there? Yeah, good question. I, I think for me, I've always been pretty hungry after most workouts or races. You know, occasionally after like a marathon, you maybe don't feel like eating for a little bit. But I, I usually just eat something small, like whatever they have at the um, finish line area I'll take with me and I'll just kind of force myself to eat, even if it's like 100 calories just to get something down. Um, but for the most part, I'm going to try to eat like a smaller meal, like you said, and probably after about an hour, hour and a half. Um, so I guess it, it really it will just depend on how much time you have before your lifting session, your afternoon, you know, um, before you plan to do your lift. But um, I guess one reason we don't want to just jump right into lifting without eating um, is, you know, if you depleted your energy storages, that's going to compromise the, the quality of your lift and your form might be right. slightly, you know, not up to par. And so we want to get the most bang for our buck if we're doing two quality sessions in one day. We don't want one of them to be kind of like sloppy. No, that really brings up a good point because a lot of people are like, oh, should I just lift immediately after my run? And I'm always like, well, if that's the only time of day that you have to do that, I think then then that works. But there is something to be said about when you are strength training, you do want to be able to be in a state where you can actually make some sort of gains and benefits from that workout. And if you're doing it in a completely exhausted state, say after a long workout where you're not even rehydrated, you haven't had proper fueling, like you said, the form might suffer, but also you're not going to be able to lift um, to what you need to to elicit a change and to build strength so a lot of runners they they want to get stronger or they want to improve their their form and that's only going to happen if you're lifting in a state where you can lift a challenging amount Um, so I think just experimenting with seeing what sort of lifting you can do later in the day and letting yourself see, hey, I can actually lift a lot more in terms of weight and in stamina and all of those things when I space my lifting and my running out by a couple of hours versus trying to dive right into it. And so you're going to see more results when you're able to split it up a little bit more. And it's also more beneficial because you're going to be able to get the fueling in between and let your body kind of have that minor recovery as well. But another thing that's super huge is, especially during this time of year, making sure you're rehydrating after that run. So the hydration part of everything and using the electrolytes and getting everything um, replenished before you go into that second workout is extremely key. So moving into the next question is, can I run a half marathon two weeks after a marathon? And so this is a very interesting question. And one one thing is like, yes, you probably can, um, but really thinking about risk versus reward here. I think the person who asked this question said something like, it's just this half marathon in my hometown. I really want to do it. And so when someone has this like nostalgic part, or I just want to do it because my friends are doing it or because it'll be fun, then it seems like, yeah, I think that's that's a good reason to want to do it. And I think people who have that mindset are more likely to go into that half marathon with more of like a fun attitude versus like, you know, I really want to PR or like that secret, like I'm going to try to kind of break the rules here. You want to make sure after you have a marathon that you're allowing your body to fully recover and kind of having that more flexible mindset of, you know, if I'm not feeling 100%, maybe I won't do that half, but it could be a fun option. So Jason, do you have any experience personally with doing any sort of races or fun runs um, within that first month or so after a marathon? And what is your advice there? Gosh, you know, I was trying to think of a time. I I really don't recall. Um, I'm sure I've done like maybe a 5K probably like three or four weeks later, but I uh, didn't expect a good performance. And, you know, I would say a, only a small percentage of runners should try to do something like this. And, you know, it kind of boils down to, like like you mentioned, uh, what you're hoping to accomplish um, in both races. It's not just about the half. It's it's about what do you plan to do for your marathon? Like if you're just out there enjoying the marathon because it's like a scenic run and you're kind of staying below your, you know, your gold marathon pace or whatever, or you're just running for fun, I think you can 
potentially bounce back quicker than someone that's going to race the marathon. And then also just it, it boils down to how experienced you are and how, how durable you are as a runner and how quick you recover from these hard sessions. And so someone like myself, I probably wouldn't do it. I mean, even if I ran the marathon easy, um, like I've done a, a, the few times that I've done that, I, um, I'm not sure I'd want to tackle a half two weeks later, unless the half was also going to be easy. I definitely wouldn't want to keep the marathon easy and then run the half hard at all. Yeah, and I do think what you said at the beginning that it just really depends on your goals, right? A lot of people ask these questions and I think whenever I answer the questions, I'm always coming from like a a mindset of best for your performance long term. And so it's like physically, would you be able to do that? I would say like 95% of runners probably could. Um if you're if you just ran a marathon 2 weeks ago, you don't lose any fitness after two weeks. Um, and most people probably would be able to run 13.1 miles. But what I'm always thinking about is like the long-term implications of what that's going to do to you. Um, I have been asked this a lot as a coach, like an athlete is getting excited and they want to do a half marathon two weeks later. And I'm like, okay, let's, let's take a step back. What are your goals? Right? So if your goals have really like nothing to do with, I want to, you know, qualify for Boston. I want to reach my potential, that sort of thing. If it's more like travel related or there's this guy in the twin cities who has he's done like I don't know he does like a hundred races a year and he's at every single race and so for him it's like he just wants to do every race and that's like how he finds fulfillment in the sport and so I think culturally as runners like I'm so programmed to answer this question coming from like a performance standpoint but there is something to be said about people just want to do interesting things with their training so I really think it's important to evaluate what it is that you're looking for you know five years down the road with your training or two years down the road are you going to be disappointed if you end up doing all these races and then you kind of are at the same spot um, aerobically and physically in a year from now Um, or are you someone that really wants to just maximize your potential in the sport and become a lot faster. And in two years from now, you don't want to be anywhere near the fitness level that you are now. You want to be at the next level. I would say then we should maybe have that be a sacrifice that we're not going to be racing um, or doing any sort of distance, even over one hour in duration, um, the first two to four weeks after a marathon for sure. And I'm someone, I actually have done this exact thing. Um, This was back very long time ago, almost eight years ago now, um, where I, you know, I really wanted to qualify for Boston. That was a huge goal of mine. And I never really wanted to commit to it. I I always kind of wanted to do things like this. Like I wanted to run a half marathon two weeks after 26.2. I just kind of was floundering. And I thought that, you know, like Boston would just happen if it was meant to be, but when I really like buckled down and said, you know what, I'm not going to do stuff like this. I'm not going to run a half marathon um, two weeks after racing uh, a marathon. I was able to start seeing improvements in my uh, fitness um, at a different level than I was previously. But you can reach a high level doing these things. It's just like, do you want to maximize your potential sort of situation? Um, so do you have any last minute things to add to this question? Um, I, I like your point about just, um, what you're hoping to accomplish, like looking a year or two years down the road. And, you know, if you're content with kind of just doing these events and not super focused on trying to improve your fitness, sort of reach your potential in the sport, then, then go for it. Um, you know, like that guy you mentioned, he's been around, he's, you know, his PR days are long over. I think he's probably approaching 60 now, but he's still, it's more just a social thing for him and, and going to all the events. But, um, so yeah, it's it's one of those things like too, if it's really important to you, you can do it this time, but you know, don't let it become a habit if that is your goal of um, really trying to reach your potential. Yeah, definitely. And just thinking back to when I did do that half marathon, gosh, it I feel like that was really like a turning point in in my running. Um, I, I ran a marathon. I was about eight minutes off of a Boston qualifying time. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to do this half. And I said, oh, I don't care about time. But in the back of my head, I actually did. And then I went out and I, I tried to PR. And it's just funny because I ran like literally to the second, the exact same time as my half PR. And it hurt so bad. It hurt like my body just felt so depleted. I just didn't feel recovered from my marathon. And I just said, gosh, like if I would just take this a little bit more seriously and do what everyone's telling me to do, like you were always saying, like, you need to take time out. Like, why are you running a half marathon two weeks after and all that stuff? And finally, like listening to people and being like, okay, maybe they, they do, you know, (laughs) have 
there's some truth to what they're saying. Um, so I kind of like leaned into that and then, uh, that's really when breakthrough things started to happen. So it's just important to kind of prioritize like what, what's really important to you and then and th- thinking about those things. And sometimes it's fun just to experiment with your body, but then just knowing what your long-term goals are and being honest with yourself is, is good too. So the third question we have is about higher altitude races. So we are based in Minneapolis. We are very sea level. We um, do not have any sort of altitude whatsoever. And there's really not a lot of elevation um, even in this area. I mean, they call it the Great Plains for a reason. There's not a lot of hills here um, compared to other parts of the country. And also there's no altitude. So we're sitting at about, I think, 600 feet here in Minnesota. So when you travel, sometimes you want to go to these really pretty places with mountains and, you know, there's like races out in Leadville, Colorado, and there's races in Montana. And a lot of these revel races, which have became very popular, are usually starting at some altitude and you kind of run down a mountain. And in order to be able to run down a mountain, you have to pretty much be at altitude, right? So um, when altitude really starts to impact people, I think it just depends. So if you're someone who lives at 3,000 feet, um, you might not think you're at altitude, but you probably will be able to more easily go to a place at 6,000 feet and be more adapted. Where if you're coming from Minneapolis and you don't have any altitude and you're going to somewhere with 6,000 feet, you might start to feel some effects of that. So 6,000 feet or 5,000 feet um, is about the altitude that this race is at. So this person saying, I'm running a marathon at altitude. I'm coming from Minneapolis. It starts at about 5,000 feet. Um, It's in Bozeman, Bozeman, Montana, I believe. And she just wants to know how can you prepare for this high altitude race when you live at sea level? So Jason, I will hand it over to you to give some tips on what she can do. Yeah, it's obviously a tough one, right? I mean, the, the good thing here is we have pretty, pretty nasty summers in terms of like uh, temperature or humidity in the morning. And they always say, you know, um, training the heat is, is like poor man's altitude training. And so um, if you can train your you know, train throughout the summertime, kind of make your, some of your runs miserable. I think that'll translate well, but really, um, the only, the only way you're going to be able to really, um, acclimate is to kind of get out there maybe a week ahead of time or go train there for a, a stretch, um, during your training cycle, stuff like that, or train somewhere else at higher altitude. Um, but there's no way to exactly reciprocate it. Um, you can try to assimilate certain things with training, you know, like, um, varying your pace on runs obviously um trying to throw in different things that are going to tire you out like rolling hills stuff like that um maybe maybe stopping and doing unconventional things like push-ups stuff like that that are just going to kind of get your heart rate spiked a little bit and then like be forced to go back to like your your pace again um because that's really the feeling i haven't really done a race that high up before but from what i've heard that's the feeling it just seems a little bit harder to breathe like things just feel a little bit more difficult as you're running and so Anything you can do to kind of make your training more difficult here, um, physically taxing and even mentally to get you to, you know, be in a tough, to, to learn how to tolerate that tough um, conditions. So maybe that's running inside where it's really warm or um, that sort of thing. Um, a fan just blowing right at your face, something like that. That Those are the things you can do that, um, you know, obviously you can't replace the, the elevation. Yeah. And I think adjusting your goals is also important. So if you are going somewhere at altitude, just understanding that there is literally a science for pace conversion there. Um, And I do think it does take people by surprise somewhat because it's not something that's glaringly obvious when you're running. It just almost feels like you're having an off day, which therefore I think can sometimes spiral into this like negative, like, oh my gosh, why is this feeling so hard? I I don't understand. Um, I've only done one race at higher altitude it started I think at six or seven thousand feet um and really I didn't think that that was going to have much of an impact but I think when I was racing some of the the things that I felt were just very thirsty almost and and kind of like it was hard to breathe and, and the way that I would describe it is kind of 
running in like the first couple of weeks of pregnancy, you always kind of feel a little off. Like it's just a little off. Um, It's a little bit hard to breathe. And I think a lot of people might just experience that feeling as having an off day. So what I would do is just understand that you might feel a little off when you're running and don't let it get into your head. Just be really confident um, in your abilities. Make that pace adjustment conversion kind of in your head and go there with the expectation that, hey, you know, it might be 15 seconds per mile off. Um, so what you're used to seeing at home, you know, you're, you're probably not going to be able to see out there and feel the same way and, and don't let that become a mental barrier for you because it, I know how sometimes people can get really into their own head. So when it comes to pacing and all of those things, so making the adjustment is going to be really key. And then the listener did say that, She was going to go about a week in advance, which I think will help a lot. I know some of my athletes have done a similar thing where they they go a week in advance. They do some hikes, even at a higher altitude, just making sure in that week that you're there, um, that you're staying really hydrated because when you're at altitude and you're coming from sea level, I think people just don't understand that being at altitude can dehydrate you a little bit faster and, and things are just different. So make sure you're staying hydrated, having your electrolytes, drinking a ton of water, Um, is super important. And then doing some of those hikes, doing some runs and just adjusting your adjusting your expectations. And then of course, as we kind of talked about earlier in the podcast, if you are someone that's going for like a killer time and and you really want to like run a specific time, um, I wouldn't recommend if you're going from Minneapolis to, to somewhere else that I wouldn't recommend that you race at altitude unless you know how it affects you. Um, Because for some people, it's not a really a big impact. For other people, you can get really sick. I know one of my athletes um, went out to, gosh, I I don't even know. It was one of those downhill Bryce Canyon half. Um, And they just felt very sick during the race. Um, Whereas like another athlete, they felt great and like ran a PR. So it, it just really depends on the person and how your body's going to respond to that altitude. And that's a little bit higher up. So that's more like eight, 9,000 feet elevation start. And then it, it, it drops from there. But knowing your body and then making sure you're not having like too high of expectations when you go to altitude. So the next question is also about fueling again, but this is more specifically to the marathon race. So what is the best fuel for your first marathon and really how do you fuel? So I just thought we would break this down. Um, what are your experiences with fueling during the marathon? Jason, I feel like you are really good at fueling and what are your tips? I guess, um, yeah, when, if you're going to be doing your first marathon, the first couple of things to consider are looking at what's going to be offered on the course. Um, unless you plan to kind of bring your own, um, you know, gels or hydration, um, you want to probably try to, it's more convenient to just take what's out there. And so try those, try that out first. Majority races are probably going to have Gatorade or Powerade, um, and then some sort of like gel, whether it's goo or, um, you know, something like that, but, uh, or cliff, that sort of thing. And then, um, you know, you can experiment with different, uh, go to a local running store where they have a lot of different options because you don't have to just take gels. I mean, there are different chewable things you can take or you can try real food as well. I'm, I'm someone that I've taken every opportunity during marathons to grab a banana or grab uh, oranges when I see it. And I know, you know, ultra runners, they'll pretty much eat anything, but they really love like dates. And um, so that's, you know, I would say eat what sits well with you. And so, you know, fuel, but in the morning you want to eat a good breakfast that you know is going to sit well with you. And so hopefully throughout your training, you can kind of assess that based on like how you feel on your workout days and your long runs and that sort of thing. And then just start to experiment, bring, bring some of these things with you on your runs and notice how, um, you know, for me, I never really noticed like a spike in energy or anything, but I just, I just, if I felt fine, like I didn't notice any sort of changes or discomfort or anything like that, then I, I would know that that would pre- sit pretty well with me. And so I know for some people, you know, taking something can cause them to be in a, in a porta potty a mile or two later. And so you just want to, you know, try to prevent that before race day. 
Yeah, definitely. Like you were saying, it's something that is really important to experiment. So if you're doing a fall race um, or even a race like a marathon in a year from now, it's never too early to start fueling. And I think you sh- that should be something that you're incorporating starting from week one of any marathon training plan, making sure that you start fueling because it is really important if you really want to reach your potential in these longer distance races. Um, the first time that you do fueling, I know even for me, um, nine years ago when I was training for my first marathon, it was really awkward. I, I felt like, I don't want to eat this. Eating while running is a very strange experience. Um, and there's just a lot of advice out there. If you, if you Google this on the internet, a lot of this uh, advice will be, well, just experiment and like, quote unquote, find what works for you. Um, but this was not really helpful advice for me because how are you supposed to know what works for you? Like I, I needed a starting point, right? Um, so I struggled with finding my own fueling strategy for the first, you know, 10 years that I was marathoning. And I got to a point where I was like, I just won't fuel at all. Um, and I think that now that I am fueling, I just feel better for longer during the race. And like you said, there's not like this magical thing that happens. So I think some people have this misconception that if you're, they're going to be taking these gels, they're going to get this like magical boost. And it's like this crazy. And that's what I, how I thought it was supposed to feel. But really what it is, is it's just like this very minor extra edge that you can get. And so it's really important to to utilize that. And I do think it really can prevent you from hitting the quote unquote wall, which happens to people in marathons when they deplete their glycogen and all of that stuff. So fueling can be a huge part of this. Um, so you want to start on an easy run, something that's not like, you don't want to start on the first time that you ever run 14 miles. You want to start with something a little bit shorter. So like, let's say you've ran 10 miles a handful of times. Well, maybe it's a good time to try on a nine mile run or like a seven mile easy run. Just grab a packet of fuel or whatever you're into, right? So maybe you're someone who hates like high fructose corn syrup and you're just not about like any sort of processed food in your body. That's fine. Try something like an applesauce, grab a date, use a natural option. There's tons of natural options out there. I just personally like the convenience of using like um, a huma gel or goo. Like to me, it's just, it's easier. And the flavors, although they're artificial, I just, I feel like they're easier to stomach. Um, When I'm running, I just can't imagine chewing something. So it just really depends on the person. That's what they mean when they say experiment and find what works for you. Find something that you can stomach. It's not something that's going to be delicious. It's not like a delicacy or anything like that. Um, It's just fuel to get in your body to to do the job, right? You want to have some of those easy to digest carbs and and some sugar to, to help with these longer distance races. So you want to be taking in fuel every 45 minutes roughly and um, just start with small sips of the gel, right? So if you've never fueled before, you don't need to like force feed the entire packet to yourself. You can just like take a little sip of the gel. Um, Just make sure that you're introducing things slowly. Um, Start with one on a 90 minute run and and take a gel 45 minutes in. Um, Maybe take half the gel the first time or just try to get a little bit in your mouth. Um, Swallow it and just keep up with trying to implement that fueling um, schedule. And it might feel a little weird at first to do that, but um, it does help sustain your energy. And running a marathon with fuel definitely allows you to perform better, especially if you're someone who's going to be out there for um, an extended period of time, even for like the half marathon, fueling becomes extremely important. So when it comes to marathon race day, Jason, what sort of fueling strategy do you recommend for your athletes? Yeah, I always recommend, you know, taking what they've done in training, um, shooting for usually um, that 30 to 45 minute window. That's a good, that's a good go-to. Um, and if you're trying to figure out like just how much to consume, I would say probably like start with like about 40 to 50 grams of carbs for an hour and just see how that works for you. And um, for me, I know you mentioned the Huma gels. I like those as well because they have a little texture with, I think the chia seeds in them. And I just feel like they go down so much faster and easier than, than like the cliff or the goo. Um and, you know, it can be a lot if you start to take all this like sugar during your run. And so that's why it's really important to make sure you're drinking water as well. And, you know, you don't need to be taking like all, you don't need to be taking all the Gatorade and Powerade, especially if you're getting electrolytes through other sources and you're consuming the water to stay hydrated. So just keep that in mind. I know there's things like salt stick pills mm-hmm. out there or things that dissolve on your, on your tongue. And so I've, I've you know, taking those as well. Um, I do like you can, cause I feel like it's not as sweet as drinking Powerade or Gatorade. And then that allows me to be able to consume, um, you know, something that's a little bit more sweeter in terms of uh, food form. So 
Right. There's so many variations of what a fueling plan may look like. And I think it will vary from person to person for a variety of different reasons, um, including just like body type and body weight, right? Someone who who's running that's maybe like 120 pounds, they just might not consume as much as someone who's maybe closer to, you know, 200 pounds on a run, just because the caloric needs are a little bit different um, for that. But just keeping in mind that there isn't like a magic secret recipe. Sometimes a lot of it is that trial and error. So I would just start with something simple. And then if you feel like you want to tweak things, like you hear about these salt pills or you hear about, um, like you can and stuff like that, trying those things out every, every weekend, just trying a new thing and seeing kind of like what works best for you. But it'll, it's a place where you can experiment. And I think practicing fueling is one of the most important things for marathon training, because if you aren't fueling properly, um, it can really deteriorate how your race performance goes, especially with the dehydration that can happen. Your performance goes out the window really quickly. So I would always say you want to fuel and hydrate before you feel like you need it. So you want to fuel and hydrate early and often because I think I mentioned earlier in one of the questions that was asked is that your digestive system stops to to work as smoothly later on in the race. So you want to make sure you're getting the nutrients in the beginning when everything's still kind of working as quickly as possible so that you can delay that um, any sort of issues that may be occurring um, in terms of, of fueling and lack of fuel that is happening. And and I always find later on on my runs or in a marathon that the gels or the water becomes like harder to stomach. <laughs> like you just don't, you might start to feel a little uh, queasy or whatever. It's just, it's less appealing. Um, it's a lot easier for me to take gels earlier in the race, um, for sure. So I would recommend doing it before you feel like you need it. Um, and then our fifth question here is all about that marathon pace. So you may have noticed on our Instagram this week, we're talking all about the long run and a big question with long run is, Hey, like what pace should I be doing my long runs in? And the next follow up question, once people find out, Hey, you're supposed to actually be going really easy, usually one to two minutes per mile slower than your marathon pace people start to get a lot of doubt and question because you're never going 26 miles in training unless you're like an elite athlete. Um, So you're really only going to go up to what, 18, 20 miles in a long run. And then you're also going a lot slower than you would in the marathon race. And people are like, well, how am I supposed to know what pace I run for the marathon? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, um, I think the hardest thing when you start, you know, training for a marathon, um, if you haven't done like a, a race recently is, is assessing currently where your fitness is at. And that's why it's so important that we have an accurate assessment so that we can kind of, um, determine what your training paces should be. Because a lot of us, um, you know, we, we, we unfortunately won't reach our potential in the marathon. And so it, it is very difficult to run 26 miles at your, you know, goal marathon pace or your, you know, that, that prescribed pace based on like your fitness level. Um, if you ran like a two mile time trial or a 5k race, um, now if you're someone that is maybe, you know, you just excel in the longer the distance is the better. Um, you're probably someone that's going to, um, have an easier time doing this, but, uh, I would say figure out what that pace is. And then, um, you know, we'll structure workouts based on um, giving you some lactic threshold training, which is going to be faster than your marathon pace by about 30 seconds. And then um, you're going to incorporate the occasional, you know, starting with probably two or three miles at a time marathon work all up to maybe six or seven, depending on the level that you're at. But most people aren't going to run more than an hour or so at marathon pace um, con- consecutively. Um, it's just not, you know, conducive to our training, we want to stress other systems as well, like the threshold system, because we can get more bang for our buck and, and make the marathon pace feel easier. And so it would be smarter to run, you know, two by 10 minutes at threshold rather than to focus on running, um, you know, three to four miles at your marathon pace every every week. So. Right, definitely. And we have that Project 26.2 going on right now. So there's a lot of fall marathons that are happening. So I'm someone who doesn't really like to add in marathon pace work 
really as like a core thing until later on in the cycle because like you said you can get more bang for your buck doing other workouts so you really want to work on improving fitness and really lowering um, that lactic threshold and getting in the best shape possible before you start doing um, marathon pace work because you may start the marathon training cycle at one fitness level but then towards the end you improve your overall fitness and so then your marathon pace is going to get a little bit faster as a result of that Um, so towards that end of the the training cycle, adding in more steady state runs, we we sometimes call them, um, where you're running pretty much at marathon pace for you know between five and seven miles is is a is a popular one that we like to give our athletes and and people really enjoy doing that work and so it allows your body to know okay this is a little bit more of a comfortably hard aerobic effort um, it gets your body used to running marathon pace and it allows you to kind of experiment with hey like is this a sustainable pace for 26.2 miles? So when you're doing those steady state runs or those marathon pace runs, you're allowed to listen to your body and figure out, you know, is this a sustainable pace for me and and figuring those things out. Um, Your long runs are more for just building the endurance and the time on your feet. And you really have to remember that you are more than just one long run. It's a compilation of all of the training. And when you're out there doing you know, an, uh, a three hour long run, when you've been doing runs all week long, you are going to be entering that long run in a very fatigued state. But when it's race day and you have like these fresh legs and you're tapered, it's going to be a lot easier to run at a faster pace. And so that's why you sometimes hear the phrase, trust your training, because you have to know that it's all like a puzzle working together to get you into the best shape possible so that you can perform and execute on race day. Um, this listener in particular was giving me an example of kind of a past history with her marathon. So she said in her training, three weeks out, she did a 20 miler at about 1040 pace in training. Um, And then on marathon race day, it ended up being a little bit of a poor weather day. So obviously that's a factor, but she said she ran 1130 pace for the marathon race day. So, you know, about a minute per mile slower than a 20 miler that she did in training. Um, And just getting to know a little bit more about that background, it seemed like she did the 20 miler at about her marathon pace. And then when it came to, to marathon race day, she ran a little bit slower. And I've totally been there myself. I mean, I could literally throw out the example of my first marathon looks exactly like this. Just the paces are obviously a little different, but I ran literally a minute per mile slower than what I did my, my, um, longest run in. And I think a lot of that had to do with me running, um, at an inappropriate pace for my long run. So I was doing my long runs at marathon pace. And then I was expecting that on race day, I was going to have either like an extra edge or that it was going to feel easier or something like that. So Jason, can you explain to me a little bit about marathon pace and like why we don't want to do 20 milers or 18 milers or 16 milers unless you're you know maybe if you're elite you can do that but um why we don't want to do that at marathon pace yeah i think you know it boils down to the physiology and we talked earlier about doing if we train more like lactate threshold um or even you know i've seen workouts where they recommend doing um, you know, slightly faster work for like fart licks during your longer runs or whatever. Maybe you're doing like 75 seconds at like a 10K pace, but then you recover on a pace that's just slightly slower than marathon pace. And I think um, over time that just that you learn, your body learns how to uh, adapt to running, uh, recovering on a, on a slightly faster pace. And I think you're going to get more um, fitness gains as opposed to just running like six miles straight at your marathon pace. And so I think by adding in different stimulus, new workouts, we're going to get different adaptations. And I think that that's, that's really the key. Um, I just, I wouldn't recommend just running straight marathon pace workouts. I just don't think that you're going to, um, for one, it's it's going to become very monotonous and it's going to be boring and you could potentially burn out if you're not varying your paces enough. And so that's why I think it's good to, um, you, you know, you want to stress all the systems even slightly. Um, you can, you know, throw some strides in, throw those occasional firelick work in, um, build in the strength, the hills, that sort of thing. And I think, um, like you said, marathon is kind of the full puzzle fitting together. And I think that that's kind of the way to approach the training. Yes, definitely. And this kind of reminds me of a story that you told me about uh, a 20 mile race, like quote unquote race that you did during training for your first marathon. So can you share with the listeners kind of 
when that was, what the situation was, and what happened at this 20-miler race. Yeah, this was before my first, um, the marathon that I had signed up for, I think it was back in 2010. Um, I did the notorious 20 miler three weeks out because there was one here and there was actually a couple to choose from that day. And so I signed up for one and I actually basically raced it and, um, it went very well. I pretty much left my marathon in the race. Um, but about like a week later, I started uh, having some, some soreness in my calf and ended up being a strain. And I basically couldn't even get myself healthy in time to run the marathon. So I had to miss it. Um, so I kind of learned for the next year, like, don't, you know, don't do this hard effort, um, run. And I think my longest run the next year was only 18 miles before I ran my first marathon. And so, um, it was a lesson I learned the hard way, obviously. And like this person, it looks like, uh, to me as well, they might've left their marathon in that 20 mile long run. And so really important to first focus on doing your long runs at the easy pace. And once you've kind of mastered that and you're at a level where you've maybe done a marathon or two, um, you're durable, you're recovering all of that. Then that's a time to start structuring these workouts into, um, select long runs. And, um, that's where we can kind of insert a few miles here and there, either at marathon pace or slightly faster, that sort of thing. Yes, definitely. And just having 19 marathons under my belt, I can totally relate to wanting to go to that you know, like medium pace range or running close to marathon pace on all of the long runs because it, it does kind of like give you this like mental edge or mental boost. Like in training, you're like, well, I, you know, I did a 20 miler at this pace, but in reality, like physiologically, it's actually doing more harm than good. So you really have to like weigh the risk versus reward, right? You want to make sure that you're training to get the best possible outcome. And so I'm always thinking, okay, like maybe you'll get a huge mental boost from doing that, but like, is it going to help you on race day? Um, and, and getting over that mental hurdle and kind of getting to the point where you can trust your training and allow yourself to go the appropriate paces can be really hard. And honestly, it can be a little scary, but once you really lean into that, um, you're able to really transform as an athlete. And this is of course anecdotal, but as I talked about, my first marathon was about a 409. Um, a lot of my runs were in that 845 to nine minute pace range. I wanted to break four in the marathon. Um, and obviously I, I did not do that. I, I ran about 930 pace. So I ran slower from a marathon than I did a lot of my long runs. Fast forward a few years when I was gearing up for even like a three, like a 320 something marathon, a lot of my long runs were about the same pace. So that 845 and nine minute pace range. And it's, it's a little funny looking back because it's like I'm in so much better shape now, but my long runs are the same. And it, it's just because I'm running with more of a purpose now. And if I were to go back in time and if I would have trained appropriately for that first marathon, a lot of my long runs should have been closer to 10-minute pace and then doing more specific workouts. But instead, what I wanted to do was train in that gray zone because it wasn't um, – it wasn't as like uncomfortable and unknown mentally. And I felt like I was getting like this extra edge and extra boost. And I think once a lot of athletes kind of play out that card from experience and then they realize, Hey, this isn't working for me. That's when they start to kind of lean into more of this like 80, 20 and this polarized training where they say, okay, I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I don't want to have this experience on race day where I have these really good training runs, but then on race day, I just cannot perform to what I thought I could. Um, and that can be a really big breakthrough moment for a lot of athletes. And I know Jason, you have worked with a lot of people who really wanted to qualify for Boston. They were just really close, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes away. And this was the one thing that they really had to embrace in order to reach that next level. And I do think as you get to be a little bit faster, um, as you start to inch closer to like the Boston qualifier times or, you know, the sub elite times, as you get even faster, that is when, you know, your body may be more adapted to these longer runs. And, you you know, let's say 16 miles easy is just nothing for you anymore. That's when you can really start to bring in some of these pace work and do some marathon pace work, um, training at a little bit of a higher intensity over a long run. Um, and, and that's why you want to make sure you're doing like a progressive overload there. You don't want to start off, um, doing something like that because, you want to make sure your body is ready to handle those marathon pace miles. So what is a good sign that someone maybe is ready to add in marathon pace miles into a long run? And do you think it's appropriate for um, most athletes? Ooh, really good question. Uh, it's such a variable, you know, question or answer um, for me. I think 
I'll look at the athlete's consistency over a, a large chunk of time. Like even in their off season, what are they doing for training, weekly mileage, long runs, that sort of thing? Are they someone that continues to run for an hour a week at least during their out of season time on their long run days? If so, um, that's a good sign. And they're probably um, staying healthy, they're recovering. And so there's someone that probably is going to be able to handle, um, you know, a few more long run type workouts. Um, if, if people are coming to me, they haven't really done much running. Um, they're just trying to kind of get back in shape to be able to run a marathon. Then I'm probably not going to have them do a lot, um, of long run workouts. It's going to be more probably like, uh, do a long run, see how they recover, that sort of thing, maybe a shorter run the next week and then kind of go every other week, something like that. Um, so it's really a variable answer, I guess. It's going to depend on so many factors, um, the athlete's uh, history, experience, um, training load, um, you know, all of these different things. And so I'll, I'll break it down. I'll kind of observe over time and see how they handle after a month. And I always tell athletes, you should feel like you're holding back, like you kind of want to be doing a bit more. Um, it's a great sign if you can recover from a long run and bounce back for the workout the next week. Um, if you're feeling residual soreness, that sort of thing, then we need to maybe uh, scale things back. Yeah, those are really good tips. And there is just so much that could go into this topic. I feel like we've talked for a long time with these questions. And this is a really fun topic where we can just chat about some of these questions that athletes are asking on social media and be able to do this in a podcast format. So we really appreciate the questions that are coming in and the ability to just help people out with um, anything that they, they need with their running. And that's why we do what we do. So if you're ever curious about your specific question or you just want to chat with a coach, we would love to get to know more about you, you can fill out the form on our website, www.runforprs.com. We always offer a free seven-day trial, or if you want like a phone consultation with Jason, you can do that right on our website too. We'd love to get to know a little bit more about you and just help you reach your running goals. So again, that's www.runforprs.com. Thanks for tuning in.